Moncrief on News Talk. There is a nun uh, named Wilhelmina Lancaster who died in Missouri in 2019. She was buried without having been embalmed, but was recently exhumed so her remains could be reburied in a monastery chapel. But after four years, it was found that Sister Wilhelmina's body was almost completely intact. In the Catholic tradition, that implies an incorrupt body and possible sainthood. Gina Menzies is a theologian and lecturer in medical ethics. Afternoon, Gina. Good afternoon, Sean. Uh, What else can you tell us about this nun? Well, there's a few things that are interesting. Um, uh, Sister Philomena was originally an oblate and um, she was unhappy with the oblate order as it was, I think, progressing. So she founded her own order in, I think, 1995. So it's fairly recent. And her order is called the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles. And um, it's very interesting if if you look it up. They they're a contemplative order, and they spend five hours a day singing. They have made a few records which have hit the top the mm. top twenty, if you like, in terms of that kind of, of music. Um, and uh, her body was, I think, as you said, was recently they were removing it after four years to remove it to somewhere else, and they discovered that it was uh, it hadn't decomposed. Now it hadn't been embalmed, so this is it is very unusual. Um, but it isn't an immediate sign of sainthood, which a lot of people seem to be um, saying about her now. Um, it, it was one of the factors sometimes in somebody being designated a saint, but it doesn't mean that if a body is not decomposed, um, that it is, it is an indication of sainthood. I think that there may be many reasons why a body hasn't uh, decomposed. Um, and usually, I think, you know, forensically, people would say at least five years before it begins to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think that could be, you know, put aside. Um, but obviously it has created uh, quite a stir in Missouri where she was buried and apparently there's loads of people turning up every day now to, to sort of to see this, uh, this, this, this non-decomposed body of, of this nun. Yeah, and they're, and they're taking handfuls of the soil from where she was buried, uh, uh, buried as well. Now, so, so to become a saint, though, first you, uh, you're proclaimed venerable. What, what do you need to have... What do you need to have done or, or, or said about you to get to that point? Oh, well, the process within Catholicism is, is very arduous. It generally doesn't happen very quickly. There are people like St. Bede, who I think died in maybe the 10th century, and it took him, I think, almost a thousand years before he was declared a saint. So the process is very arduous. You're absolutely right. The first sort of step really is somebody to be recognized as as venerable, as somebody worthy of further investigation. Um, then the local diocese would do a massive sort of interrogation or information gathering, and that would be sent to Rome. And if Rome, if the congregation in Rome that looks after the causes of saints, if they deemed it worth pursuing, they would then uh, pass it on to, to the Pope. Um, then the Pope would consider maybe that it's time to sort of declare this person blessed, um, but for that, they need um, a miracle. It's interesting, there is an Irish connection at the minute, which is fairly recent. John Sullivan was a Jesuit priest in Plongos. And uh, in 2017, uh, he was beatified in Dublin, which was a first, certainly for Ireland and for Dublin. Um, and his, his life is interesting, a, a little bit of sort of, not personal, there's any personal connection with him. But my father-in-law was a pupil of Plongos, and uh, he often... Um, mentioned that this man was a really very, very saintly person. Um, he mm. visited the, the apparently a lot of the local people and, and, and people who were sick, and he did seem to have quite an impact on, on people who were ill, and it is, it is declared that he has 
you know, there has been at least one miracle that is verifiable. Now, how you verify a miracle, it's something that is inexplicable. But a miracle is necessary to move on, if you like, to the next stage for canonization, where two two miracles um, are, are needed. But what is interesting is that in recent times, um, the, the current Pope Francis, just a few years ago, because the Pope ultimately has the final say, he uh, initiated a, another process whereby it wasn't martyrdom or it wasn't heroic virtue that somebody who had given their life, who had lived out or, if you like, been witness to the gospel in an extraordinary and exemplary way, uh, for which there are many witnesses, that they would also be um, declared a saint. I suppose also interestingly that in 2000 and I think 17, um, sorry, 2013, uh, on the same day, and this is really interesting in terms of Catholicism, that John the 23rd and um, John John Paul the Second were both declared saints. So they, if you like, they were fast tracked very mm. much by 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 Benedict by by Francis, which is you know interesting in itself. Yeah. Um, so when a person is blessed and they have one miracle, does that mean? Somebody, you have a group of witnesses who said this miraculous thing happened, you know, presumably somebody, you know, was, was cured of something uh, and we were only playing, praying exclusively to this venerable person. Therefore, we ascribe the miracle to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's more or less it, that there are people who will testify, who will say, um, I think with John Sullivan, it was um, a young girl um, or no, I think it was a woman who had um, a neck tumour, um, uh, a cancerous neck tumour neck tumour and you know it disappeared now can that happen I think you know it can but there is often no explanation but the view was that you know that this person had prayed had a special devotion to John Sullivan and uh, the the tumour disappeared Um, I mean verifiable scientifically all the science I think can say is that these things do happen Mm. Um, and I suppose in general you know saints are people who um, demonstrate uh, an extraordinary adherence to Christian living. Um, I think, again, John Sullivan was, was an example of that. He, he lived a very impoverished life, I think, himself and spent his life traveling around the, sort of the Kildare on his bicycle, administering, uh, you know, to, to the sick. Um, more recent saints, I, I think, are, are in, in the past, it seemed to generally be an awful lot of priests and, and, uh, and, and bishops, etc., etc. But more recently in the 21st century and the 20th century of people like um, Maximilian Kolbe, who was a Franciscan, um, and he died in a concentration camp because he took the place of a man who was going to be executed. And he said, you know, I'll take his place because that man is a father and has children. And he was declared a saint in 1982. And another one I'm a little bit more familiar with is Titus Blansman, who was a, a Carmelite. And he was declared a saint in 2022, again, somebody who died in Auschwitz. Um, so if you like, the category, the, the criteria certainly has broadened beyond martyrdom. Mm. Whereas if you look back in Catholic, Catholic history, the first saints, if you like, Peter and Paul were all martyred for their belief because it was contrary to the society of the time. So it has been broadened out, certainly by, by Francis, to include uh, other kinds of lives that did witness to if you like, Christian values in an exemplary way. Uh, now, before I, I, I leave you go, Gina, I must ask you about, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the, you know, the results of the census uh, that came out today. And there, there is a fall in, in, the, in, I suppose, in the percentage of people who identify themselves, themselves as Catholic at 79,000 uh, to uh, 69,000, though the population has gone up. So it's kind of a fall of about 200,000 or less than 200,000 people. 
who don't identify as Catholic anymore. Are you surprised by those figures one way or the other? Um, that- no, no, I'm not really surprised. I think, no, I haven't read it in detail, but I think it's the first time that um, no religion um, appeared on the census. Now, I'm not sure, but I think that's what I, I've heard during the day. Mm. I, I'm not surprised because sort of anecdotally, uh, you would you would sort of you meet more people socially who would say that they, they don't have any beliefs um, uh, and that they don't practice their religion in, in any form anyway. It doesn't mean that they're not very good people. I, I would hasten to add. I know many people who would say they don't have have a, ascribed to a particular religion, but who live, you know, very very good lives. I mean, I often think that there's a phrase I once heard that you know God has many people whom the church has, and the church has many people who God maybe doesn't have. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the no religion figure uh, went up from uh, 451,000 odd to 736,000. Uh, that category now makes up 14.14% uh, of the population. It's just, I suppose, on the Catholic thing, there's been so much controversy about, you know, the, the church having control of schools and etc., uh, etc. Et that I think there would, that had been an expectation that that, that fall would be greater uh, and yes. just a fall of 10%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my like observation would have expected it to be much higher. So I'm surprised um, that it isn't higher. Um, you know, if you look at you know we're part of the Western European society where there has been a huge decline in adherence to any kind of former religion anyway. So I would have expected it to to be higher. And as you rightly say, Sean, given sort of the recent history. Um, of the church in Ireland and uh, and elsewhere, and the whole issue of, of abuse and scandals, and uh, if you like the the, the lives of women uh, being dictated to by the church. I mean, all that has changed significantly in in this in the last twenty thirty years. Mm. So I would have expected it to be much higher. So I suspect there'll be many people in the church today who you know, are very grateful that it isn't higher. <laughs> oh yes, indeed. I mean, still three and a half million people who identify. Though I wonder, is that is it the same as what being Catholic would have meant 20 or 30 years ago? Because it's not like there's been a massive increase in, in you know, mass attendance or anything. Well, my, my, again, my own kind of observation is that people live their religious lives or their belief systems in a different way than they did in the past. If mm. you look back to Ireland sort of, you know, 50, or 30, 50, 40, 60 years ago, I think people very much practice a religion that adhered to rules and regulations. And uh, they felt that was how you you maintained your religion, religious belief. Whereas now I think people, not that they work it out for themselves, but they understand that, you know, being a Christian, being a Catholic uh, is a much different uh, way of living your life. It is trying to be selfless. It's trying to do good things. You know, it's trying to observe, if you like, the values that are in the gospel, uh, perhaps more than the rules and regulations. I think rules and regulations don't necessarily... And, and I do think some rules and regulations are necessary, but some of the ones that we had, you know, the, uh, were were quite extreme and quite bizarre when you think of how people lived their lives. I think you can identify uh, people who lived their lives well without sort of saying, you know, what rules and regulations are they following? So I think we've moved into a different understanding of belief, of Christianity, of Catholicism, that I would hopefully is much more in, in keeping with the values of the Gospels, which I think are really much more important than rules and regulations. Gina, thanks a million uh, for speaking with us today. That was Gina Menzies there, the theologian and lecturer in medical ethics. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.